someone once told me time is a flat circle. If everything we've ever done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again. Hey everyone, it is Michael. I am your host for the Flat Circle Podcast this week. I'm without my sister, actually, as she's on a little vacation. So you're stuck with me. <laughs> Enjoy. That's all right, though. We'll push through this. I've got something special for you this week, listeners. Absolutely nothing. I kid. I kid. This week, I want to talk to you about a case that I remember first seeing on Unsolved Mysteries as a kid. To this day, I still think of it from time to time. And just like when I was a kid, it still gives me chills. This week, I dive into one of the most heinous crimes in New Mexico's history, the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. Buckle up, y'all. Let me take you back 31 years. It was Saturday, February 10th, 1990. After 7.30 a.m. inside the Las Cruces Bowl, which was a popular bowling alley in the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico, 34-year-old manager Stephanie Senek was in her office getting ready to open the building for the day. Now, as we all know, Saturdays are one of the most busiest days for bowling businesses, am I right? So it's safe to say Stephanie Senek had a lot on her plate this morning. To help her out, she brought her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, and Melissa's friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, who were going to oversee the alley's daycare that day. There was one other employee at Las Cruces Bowl at that time, 33-year-old Ida Holguin. She was the alley's cook. Now, shortly before the opening of the alley, two men entered the kitchen through an unlocked door. Ida Holguin was the first to see the gunman. While the first gunman moved beyond her, a second gunman pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and ordered her into Stephanie's office. When Ida and the second gunman entered the office, Stephanie, her daughter Melissa, and her friend Amy Hauser were already being held by the first gunman. Immediately upon entry of the office, the gunman ordered everyone to lie down next to each other. When they obeyed, the gunman proceeded to take around $5,000 from the office safe. Simple robbery, right? No. This is where things took a turn for the worse. While the gunmen were emptying the safe, the bowling alley's pin mechanic, 26-year-old Steve Terran, who was also Stephanie Senek's brother, Melissa's uncle, entered the building with two of his own children. Six-year-old Paula Holguin, which is in no relation to Ida Holguin, and two-year-old Valerie Terran. Now, since the alley had a daycare, which, if you remember, Melissa and Amy were going to supervise that day, Steve felt comfortable dropping his youngins at the alley's daycare. The three entered the front doors. Immediately, they found that it was empty. So this prompted Steve, with children in hand, to enter Stephanie Senek's office. Stumbling onto the crime scene in progress, they spooked the gunmen, who were still emptying the safe. So much so, in fact, that the gunman had them get on the floor with the others and then proceeded to shoot all seven victims execution style. When each victim was down and not moving, they took some papers on Stephanie's desk and lit the office on fire, starting with her desk. Flames shot up the walls and all around the victims. All of them lied motionless on the floor. Now, the day started out as any normal day, but here they were on February 10th of 1990, victims of a senseless crime. Stephanie, Melissa, Amy, Ida, Steve, and his daughters Paula and Valerie. It was tragic. 
absolutely gut-wrenchingly tragic. Then, at 8.33 a.m. of that morning, following what happened, a 911 call was made. Get out. Get I out. can't. There's nobody else. 
Was that the police officer? Yeah. Did you get out? Yeah. Then get out. Okay. Okay. Now, as you heard, that was Stephanie's daughter, Melissa, repass on the phone. From her call, all emergency services, officers, EMT, the fire department, Las Cruces' finest, were dispatched and rushed to the scene. But when the Las Cruces police arrived on the scene, they had discovered Steve Terran, Amy Hauser, and Paula Holguin were already dead. Two-year-old Valerie Terran was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, she didn't make it either. She passed away upon arrival. Now, Melissa Repass's heroic call helped save her mother, Stephanie, who was shot so many times in the head, and, and as well as bowling alley cook, Ida Holguin, who was shot three times in the head. The Las Cruces Police Department had a lot of help. Now, they had help from the U.S. Customs, the United States Army, and Border Patrol, and they all set roadblocks up throughout the entire city of Las Cruces. Planes and helicopters, they were all dispatched, but despite their quick and thorough efforts, no arrests were made. The gunmen escaped. Chuck Franco, a detective with Las Cruces Police Department at the time, was one of the first to arrive on scene. Upon observing the overwhelming brutality of the scene, he said his first thought when seeing the victims was, what kind of animal could do this to kids? Investigators believe the suspects are Hispanic or Latin with dark complexions. Both suspects were said to speak fluent English. Now, one gunman looked in his mid to late 20s and stood 5'6 or 5'8 with a medium build approximately 190 pounds, while the other gunman appeared a little bit older. Now, he was in his late 30s and early 40s and was a little bit shorter. He stood around 5'5 and he had about a medium build as well and looked about 160 to 180 pounds. To this day, the Las Cruces Police Department considers this case an active investigation. If they do have any leads, they haven't come out and said anything. There are no suspects that we know of and no persons of interest. Nothing. And to end the sad story I'm telling you now, Melissa Repass's mother, Stephanie Sanic, died nine years later in 1999 due to complications from the injuries she suffered that dreadful February day. Five deaths overall, two survived. Okay, so who were the victims? Let's break it down. Now, Stephanie Senek, the manager of Las Cruces Bowl, she was the daughter of the owner, actually, of the building, Ron Senek. Ron Senek owned Las Cruces Bowl. And Stephanie was known to be an incredibly hard worker and ran the entire place herself, basically. Um, she was kind of all over. So her daughter, Melissa, was always helping her. She was 12 at the time of the shootings, but she was known as wise beyond her years for a 12-year-old. Today, she's 43 years old and has kept her life incredibly private, neglecting to do interviews. She remained in Las Cruces for four more years after the shooting before being honored with the G.I. Joe Award for Courage. And then she moved away from New Mexico to be near her family. I looked at and when Stephanie died, she died in New Orleans. So I'm assuming she wanted to be near her family. So I'm guessing Melissa Repass actually moved to New Orleans. Uh, Melissa, she did complete her high school and college educations and later was married in 2002. And today she has two children of her own. Her friend Amy Hauser was older by about a year, but they were best friends for years. From what I gathered, I think she was being paid to help Melissa supervise the daycare that day. So that was the reason why Amy Hauser was in that building. Now, Ida Holguin, the alley's cook, if you remember, she hasn't returned to the bowling alley since Unsolved Mysteries filmed the episode there. And that's actually where I first became, like I said earlier, of this known of this case through one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Now, when she did see the episode and when she did step foot and in that episode, it shows her stepping foot back in there. It made her physically sick to relive what all happened. Now, upon her shooting, she was admitted in a special hospital for six months in Dallas, Texas. 
and she had to relearn everything. Her motor skills, I mean, her memory came and went. It was very traumatic for the survivor. She was never quite the same again after the massacre, her husband said. And, and to this day, she suffers from PTSD. And every day she has that one question, why did God have her live instead of the others? And the only answer she can come up with was so she could take care of her grandchildren, to which are her world. Now, Steve Tarrant, remember that day, he couldn't find a babysitter. So the circumstances for bringing his own kids were to go to the daycare to have Melissa and her friend Amy watch the kids. I mean, that's kind of what was going on. Now, Steve was also, like I said before, Stephanie's brothers, but I don't think he had any relation to Ron. I think Ron was a stepfather, just another father. I don't even know if he was a stepfather. I couldn't find that. But basically, Steve was Stephanie's brother, and I don't think he had any relation to Ron. Um, but remember, that day he took his daughters because he couldn't find a sitter. And and Steve was was known as a hard worker, a go-getter as described by his brother Anthony, who to this day is his voice. I mean, he's the one that really has been outspoken of trying to get people to, to come forward with information to solve everything. And he always said, Steve was a go-getter. Steve was hardworking. Steve was a practical joker. And and much like the other brothers, uh, he loved football. And Steve also, it should maybe most important, aside from being a father, was uh, and, a, and a brother, was a proud veteran who served in the United States Army as a lieutenant years earlier. Now, his brother, Anthony, criticizes... Sometimes he criticizes the police department. Sometimes he just criticizes the overall movement of this case. When he spoke to the Las Cruces Sun News, he actually said, in this day and age, things like this don't go unsolved. How did we get not get these guys? That's the question mark I ask myself every day. Numerous people saw these gunmen, so someone out there knows something, and they need to come forward. Paula Holguin, who, if you remember, was Steve's daughter, uh, she was six at the time, and she was known as a girly girl to anyone who really knew her. She had a bubbly personality and loved everything ribbons and bows. Her younger sister, Valerie Taryn, which was two years old at the time of her death, she was known to be more reserved like her father, Steve, and preferred to wear jeans and anything blue, which was complete opposite of her sister, Paula. And I'm sure you're wondering what actually happened to the bowling alley. Is the bowling alley still there? Well, a bowling alley, it, it kind of gotten bought a couple times as a bowling alley after Ron sold it. And the bowling alley, the last bowling alley it was named was 10 Pin Alley. And it continued to be housed inside the Las Cruces Bowl building until 2018 when it shut its doors for good. That building remains vacant to this day. It's left abandoned yet haunted with the terror that took place inside. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, my thoughts. There, there's actually been similarities in this case. And one that I found that is kind of low-hanging fruit is the yogurt shop murders. And this happened in, on December 6th of 1991 in Austin, Texas. And this is where the murders uh, of four teenage girls took place. They were raped and murdered and the assailants set sh the shop on fire. Now, while no one was raped in the Las Cruces massacre, murder and arson were key aspects that investigators have looked into. To this day, though, investigators in Texas and New Mexico haven't confirmed or denied any connections between the two crimes. It's hard to say if they are connected, but that is another horrific murder of young people. So when children are kind of murdered, it's kind of in, in numerous cases that were, you know, Texas and New Mexico are near each other. You kind of got to look into it. So um, 
what we do know is clearly the gunman set everything on fire to destroy evidence. I mean, that was clear. Now you look at the office, it was carpeted. I mean, there's pictures online. If you guys want to go online, you want to check it out, you will see crime photos. You won't see, I don't think you can see, find the bodies, but you will see the blood where they were. And, and it was kind of a, it looked like it was kind of like a smaller office, but it was carpeted, like I said, and there's blood all over. And uh, the desk was wood and it was your typical office. I mean, there were boxes, papers upon papers, printers, calculator, telephone, what have you, but it was very much in disarray. And also that day, remember, DNA technology was at its infancy in the 1990s as the Crucis PD relied heavily on fingerprint analysis and eyewitness accounts. So to this day, evidence collected at that scene is still actually being processed and analyzed at a forensic crime lab in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So it's not as easy as connecting the DNA and boom, we got our guys because, I mean, the, the fire destroyed a lot of it. So so the detectives really had to try to get everything they could. And like I said, DNA technology was not, I mean, it was really nothing. It just wasn't a, a huge thing. I mean, remember when the OJ case, the OJ Simpson case happened later on, they were still making, they were, nobody understood DNA at that time, you know, through 93 through 96. It was almost unheard of. So, I mean, in, in police departments like Las Cruces, I mean, they collected what they could, but they didn't, I mean, if you don't really know what DNA is, you don't know what to really collect. Am I right? So now I did check this bowling alley, the former bowling alley out on Google Maps. And while it's not, and while it's not heavily populated, uh, there are older houses and businesses on that street, which were populated at that time. I see many uh, new type of businesses. Also, there's there might have been busy in certain parts, but it's not busy all over. But it does sit on a main street. Still, though, it's in a wide open area. But the gunman's getaway would have had to been dicey, I would have thought, to say the least. And also, it's a very bold move to rob a bowling alley during the day just before open. Now, think about that one. So let's talk potential tips on this case. Tips flooded the police department following the massacre, digging through Reddit and message boards and Facebook. And man, I went to town on this case. Uh, there's just so much information. And it's something I've just been interested in a long time. Just just I want this case solved so bad. Uh, I found a few potential theories that line up with some tips that were given to the police. But before I say what they are, just know that I'm not stating these are facts. I'm stating what I found. And I did confirm through other sources, but I, I, I'm not saying that this is 100% legit. But I did compile a lot here and I did a lot of research, guys. So just kind of keep everything in mind as to what possible theories could happen. Not really naming people that are this guy did it or he did it. But I just want to give you guys kind of expand your mind because we really don't have any suspects in this case. No persons of interest, nothing. So let's put out some people that we think should be maybe questioned again, maybe looked at a little bit more, which are probably being looked at a little bit more. One tip from, from a woman who said the men had stayed with her after the murders. The, she, she said one of the gunmen stayed with her after the murders. supposedly she told the police, the killings were over drugs. So the, and the woman was a known drug ab abuser herself. So it's kind of really hard to say if she's a credible, if she's actually a credible witness. Um, Once she was sober, she recanted her statement and the men were never found. So take that what you will. Maybe somebody stayed with her. Maybe not. We don't know. But that, that, that one's a little hard for me to wrap my head around. But let's go off this drug angle a little bit more because New Mexico, you're looking at, you know, the southern United States of America bordering Mex uh, Mexico, the country of Mexico, where there is a lot of drug activity. It's hard to ignore that. Right. So let's look at the drug angle a little bit. The drug angle brought another employee into the authorities view. 
His name is RJ. No, RJ is Steve Taran and Stephanie's brother and Stephanie Senek's brother. Um, he tended a bar. He tended bar at, at the Boeing Alley. So he did work there. It seemed like this was a very family business. Um, and according to friends and family, he also abused drugs. His drug of choice was cocaine. Now, witnesses said many of his drug deals happened at the bowling alley, but RJ gave authorities no information that could lead to capturing the gunman. So they knew he was a drug abuser. He sold. I mean, cocaine is it's not marijuana. It's it's a heavy drug. So that's up there with your heroin and and meth and things like that. So. So RJ is somebody think somebody to this day, and I he supposedly is alive to this day still. Mind you, these guys were all real young. So RJ is still alive to this day, from what I found. But who knows if they're questioning him again? Now, one guy I mentioned before, and I wanted to get back to right now, who I think is this one might have some legs, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Ron Senek. Now, if you remember Ron Senek, I said earlier minutes ago that he was Stephanie's father. Now, Ron Sinek was in he not only was he the father, but he was the owner of Las Cruces Bowl. He was the owner of the goddamn bowling alley. Stephanie's father was heavily looked into by authorities. There have been reports that he wasn't very cooperative with police, but I can't really confirm if this was the case or not. So I don't want to say he was or wasn't, but I did want to say that that is out there. Um, it was also well known that Ron had financial woes. I found that he was actually $1.5 million in debt. I got confirmation that he had been living at the bowling alley at the time of the murders, but on that day, he was out of town. Many say his behaviors following what happened was suspicious, to say the least. Now, get this, not even a week after the crime took place, Ron opened the Las Cruces Bowl back up to the public again. Fucked up, right? However, at the end of 1990, December was the month, Ron sold Las Cruces Bowl. He sold his bowling alley. Now, at the time of the closing, like I said, Ron was $1.5 million in debt. And it is confirmed that police had questioned him, but Ron was unable to provide anything substantial for them. So retired detective Chuck Franco, who originally led the case today, it's led by Amador Martinez, and he's a detective with the LCPD. But at the time, Chuck Franco, I mean, he devoted his life to this case. And, and he believes actually that the gunmen were professionals based on the type of weapon they used and how the victims were shot. And because the suspects tried to rid of any evidence with the fire, which is a common practice with most criminals, right? I mean, anytime you see a murder go down, usually you'll try to see them cover their tracks. So he felt that these guys were professionals in some way. Frankel also stated he feels the massacre was possibly meant to send a message, a fucking message. Can you believe that? And while he first believed the gunmen were from Las Cruces, he now believes the gunmen were actually from another state or possibly another country and were brought to Las Cruces for a job. So what does this stink of? Cartel, maybe? Was Ron in debt to them? Was RJ in debt to them? It's hard to say. To kind of solidify these thoughts, Ida Holguin, the, one of the survivors and former Ali Cook, stated that she sensed, she used that word sensed, that the robbers did not have robbery as their primary motive. It was if they were looking for something else before they went to the safe, she said. Ida had also mentioned that sometime before this incident, she and others who worked at the bowling alley thought that they had seen people who looked exactly like the gunmen sitting at a table and just watching everyone, not bowling, not playing pool or anything that was offered at the bowling alley. So she said they looked a lot like the gunmen. Okay, so the two suspects did not wear masks or gloves and were seen by many running across a very busy street, Amador Avenue, an alleyway. 
So they were seen by another bowling alley employee before he left the parking area prior to the incident outside the building. So the Las Cruces Police Department believes that someone may have sheltered them after the incident. They didn't park there. They didn't do anything. Pretty fucking bold, right? Maybe the gunman fled to Mexico. Maybe they are still alive. Maybe they're still alive in the community of Las Cruces disguised as normal citizens, or maybe, maybe they passed away. For nearly 30 years, authorities have made public appeals asking anyone for information on this case to no avail. They've even updated the sketches, which I'm sure means aging them, but still, there's been no progress. Also, I just want to note this one little thing. I don't know if it's important or not, but in 2020, the the station KVIA, ABC7, it's in El Paso, Texas. They have an anchor, Stephanie Valley. Valley. Uh, she posted her Borderland Crimes podcast. So she has a called the she has a podcast called Borderland Crimes, and she decided to discuss um about the bowling alley massacre. She received a call after the podcast had aired from a woman originally from Las Cruces who gave her name of a man. The tipster is certain is the younger attacker. So she claims his family, the the family, the younger attacker or the younger gunman's family actually knows that he committed the crime, but they remain quiet. Even though the man um, actually killed himself in 1997, the younger man or the man in question here, KVIA ABC7 has opted against revealing his name because he has not officially been named a suspect. But KVIA ABC7 confirmed with Las Cruces Police Department that Stephanie Valley has also passed the information to the investigators. So what do you guys think? Let us know. If anyone listening has information that can help this case move forward, please call the Las Cruces Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Tips can also be provided through the Crime Stoppers app, P3Tips. Just what I said. There is a $30,000 award for information regarding this horrific case. Those who have provided tips through Crime Stoppers do not have to leave their own name, and you can remain completely anonymous if you want. As always, thank you for listening this week to me and only me being a one-man band here. And I really appreciate it, guys. If you dig this podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. We just we love seeing that. We love we love the support anyway, and we just love doing this. Like my sister Kelly always says, remember to stay kind, stay curious, and always question the world around you. Catch you next week. 